Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. We are just one month away from World Cup 2022, so sign up now at grantwall.com. Busy weekend in the soccer world. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, my friend? Doing all right. When you said a month into the World Cup, I just sort of, it's, it smacked me in the face. As if, like, I, I, I don't feel like I was prepared to be one month away from the start of the World Cup. My God, the soccer world is so busy, and we have a World Cup in a month. It's absolutely crazy. World Cup's in November and December. I'm just not used to it. Uh, nobody is. I get it. It's coming, though. It's coming sooner than you might think. And there's a ton of soccer between now and then because club soccer needs to take care of a bunch of business, including this weekend. By the way, you're actually doing this in New York a couple miles or less than a couple of miles where I'm from. Um, welcome to New York. I feel like I am, I don't know, when did I become a gatekeeper for New York? I just You're live like an here, ambassador. But, um, <laughs> you you join me with Thomas Rongan. You're here. Um, you join me for to watch games this morning at Smithfield, my favorite soccer bar in New York. Uh, you and Thomas are up here for Inter Miami's broadcast. Um, they're playing in the playoffs in MLS against New York City at City Field, the Mets Stadium, on Monday night. I'm excited that you're getting to travel with Inter Miami. You should be able to do this more often, in my opinion, but you're here now. What are your thoughts of New York City, Chris? Because I, I get the sense that you haven't spent that much time in New York over the years. No, actually, I, I realized in, in speaking to you today that I've only traveled in, oddly enough, for a couple of soccer games played on baseball fields uh, <laughs> into to this city. So, yeah, it's been a long time for me. And I guess uh, the thing that I did not miss was the traffic. The traffic is uh, quite oppressive uh, to, to get around, uh, and particularly when you're taking a, a coach bus for uh, two sets, uh, two, two groups of people, the staff and the players, uh, to get around. But yeah, I mean, in terms of like, you can find any good meal within 10 blocks of wherever you are. I am a huge proponent of public transit, and so I enjoyed taking the subway over to you today. Got there in like nine minutes. It was delightful. Um, but I, I, it's one of those things where you're almost here too quickly to fully experience things. But for me, it's sort of like you get on Yelp or you Google best pizza near you, and there's there's something within 10 blocks of you almost perpetually in New York City. So uh, th those are certainly the, the good bits that you take with the bad bits. I hope you have a good experience here. Next time, I hope you stay a little longer, and I feel like it's on me a little bit to introduce you a little bit more to the city. Actually, coming to my soccer bar is a pretty good way to introduce yeah. you uh, in the short time that we had. And it was fun watching the games today. I mean, there was a lot going on. Um, Leeds Arsenal was sort of the first match on the undercard in a sense. And then you had Real Madrid, Barcelona, El Clasico. And then you had Liverpool, Man City, which has been the best rivalry game in world club soccer for a few years now and, and delivered again. Uh, let's start with that because Liverpool handing Man City their first loss uh, competitively this season. 1-0, Mohamed Salah finally connects after not for a while. And Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp seem to have Man City's number to an extent. I, I saw a graphic today from Jaime Macias about there's only a few coaches out there who have won more than they've lost against Pep Guardiola 
And Jurgen Klopp is one of them, and he's won far more games than any other manager in that group against Pep. And this was a pretty fascinating game. Yeah, and for me, the the reason for that statistic is the nature of Jurgen Klopp's teams, particularly at home. And I think what Liverpool have been missing all season long is that extra bit of intensity. They have not been as aggressive in their press. They have not been sort of at it, particularly from a midfield standpoint. And I think even at moments today, you can see that they they miss key players. Luis Diaz is out now, so Harvey Elliott plays on one wing. And I thought a couple of key Liverpool attacks died at his feet. This is a game where I would say... I think of a playoff at NBA basketball where almost one by one, every member of a rotation gets picked off, right? So by the time you get to the finals, like the Celtics and the Warriors are playing six guys because they were the guys who could survive playing at that high of a level. And I think this game is similar in that regard where you sort of enter it going, all right, are our 10th and 11th best players good enough for this game? And I thought that Harvey Elliott was probably, uh, it, it, the occasion looked a little bit too big for him in certain moments. And then I think what this fixture allows for Liverpool is to have an enormous atmosphere at home to sort of have that carrot of, all right, this is the game that we go after. And when Liverpool have those moments, they're incredible. They just, for whatever reason, have not been able to summon it. I wonder if this is sort of the springboard for them to look more like normal Liverpool week in, week out. But Jurgen Klopp always manages to get this kind of performance out of the team. And although I I looked up the numbers at the end of it, Man City had more possession. I wonder if that was sort of the nature of the game state in the second half. I said to you, when we were watching the game in the first half, I just think that Man City, for whatever reason, are not able to pass the ball and keep possession and look calm and composed like they normally do. And it's not because other teams don't try and upset their possession, don't try and press, don't try and and cause Man City problems. For whatever reason, when they're at home or when they're away in other atmospheres, they just seem to be able to execute. And there's just something about that place where Man City can't execute like they normally do. They're, you know, they're simple balls that go from Bernardo Silva midfield to Phil Foden on the wing. They're three yards too heavy and it goes out of play for a throw-in. For whatever reason, there's something about that stadium that doesn't allow Man City to play normally. And you have to give huge credit to Liverpool for finding this level of performance. And I, I just think that there's something about this fixture where Jurgen Klopp has, has Pep Guardiola's number and Anfield has Pep Guardiola's number because he's never won there. It's really interesting. And in you know, City did put the ball in the net. The goal was taken away by VAR, and it seemed like the right call that Erling Holland did foul Fabinho and actually had a handful of his shirt uh, on the play. Though at first you didn't totally see it, right? So yeah. VAR having an influence here, but also City just not creating as many goal-scoring chances in this game as we've seen recently from them. And the high line from City creating some opportunities for Liverpool because I don't actually think Mohamed Salah finished very well in this game, but he finally no, he finished had a couple. one. <laughs> he had a couple chances. You know, and and so good for him to sort of fight through it. And, and the chance came, Cancelo went for the ball, missed it. And in that instant, that decision was a game changer. And, and still... It was it was dicey, right? I I, I mean, just a, a, it felt like a game sort of you're always on the edge of something decisive happening, 
And, and that, those and, kinds and, of games are fascinating to watch. And, and that's the nature of this fixture. That's the nature of the way that these two teams play. It's why it's so captivating. And I think what you sort of described there, I think it, it is in some ways instructive of why Man City haven't won the Champions League under Pep Guardiola. It's because it always comes down to a moment. And, my, and Man City exposed themselves to such a degree where if they don't get that one moment right, they're out. And that's the nature of knockout competitions, and that's the nature of this fixture. They get it right a lot, but for whatever reason, the the nature of the way that they play exposes themselves to such a degree that they can get caught out in those individual moments. And by the way, the same can be said for Liverpool, but for whatever reason, they find it from within themselves in this particular game. I think you have to give credit because we talked about sort of 10th and 11th men. James Milner starts it right back for Liverpool and does a job. He did a really good job in helping uh, keep that Man City attack at bay. I just think you look at a number of performers in this Liverpool team and they were able to do their job on an important day when Man City throw everything at it individually. They have such great technical players. They can bring such great technical players off the bench and they manage to hold them scoreless. And you look at the XG numbers, 0.98, you think, okay, that, that's a that's a goal for Manchester City, but also that's a really low total for Manchester City. They're, they're always at two or three, almost no matter the opponent. So they did a great defensive job in Liverpool. I think the biggest criticism you can have of them, yeah, Mo Salah has and probably scored enough goals this season and he did get a hat-trick in the Champions League against Rangers in midweek, but on the whole has not been the same player that he's been in the league for so many years. Really, the issues have been defensively with intensity in midfield, with the quality they're pressing, and they found it from within themselves today to press like hell. You know, I also look, it's news now when Erling Haaland does not score a goal, yeah. right? And so you notice that in this game, you noticed a bit of frustration on Erling Haaland's part during this game with the way things were playing out. Um, I personally feel like um, City is better when Jack Grealish doesn't start, <laughs> in, including this game. Uh, I thought Bernardo actually, he was annoying, but I thought he was better uh <laughs> In, he's always annoying, um, <laughs> and, and and Foden I think is you know is a constant threat for the most part. So I like it when Grealish doesn't start. Um, I also look at Liverpool, and I've got I've got some questions. What do we make of Darwin Nunez? <laughs> well, I mean, he had the one moment where he was unbelievably selfish. They had a three-on-one. It was sort of the moment that I've honestly seen at Anfield a million times where the floodgates open and they score the goal and Darwin Nunez is running at the Man City defense three-on-one like 30 seconds later from the restart of play and for whatever reason decides to go it alone and have a strike go, go wide. I think those are the moments where you sort of miss the tried and true Liverpool characters that have been there for the last four or five years during this great run because they're trying to integrate new pieces and they almost don't have the same level of cutting edge. They haven't been coached for as long. They haven't uh, sort of been born in that fire that is this game. And Darwin Nunez completely got it wrong in that moment because that that was like, for me, I saw that like break. It was like, all right, this is 2 nil. No, no question about it. I mean, I, I'm still trying to get a sense of what Darwin Nunez, Nunez is going to be. And, and I don't know if Liverpool knows yet because it's still fairly early, right? He didn't, he hasn't adapted as quickly as Luis Diaz did. And, and maybe that's asking for too much, right? But I, I, I'm starting to kind of, you know, I'm, I'm so used to Liverpool getting big signings right because they don't, they have a targeted amount of money they can spend. And they can spend a lot on a very certain number of players. But like, 
the pressure is on them to get it right. And they've gotten it right so many times, and I'm not certain they've gotten it right with Darwin Nunez. And I guess we'll wait and see how that shakes out. What do you think, what does this game mean for Liverpool in the bigger picture, right? In the league? Because they're pretty far off the pace. Do you think they're like out of it when it comes, do you think they cannot win the title? I I, I do think that it's just too many points. They're, I mean, even uh, Arsenal, we'll, we'll get to their win over Leeds. Um, if you look at the league table, I just think there's too much of a gap at this point. And you look at the standard that has been set in the league for the last few seasons, you know, it takes a minimum of 90 points to get there. And Liverpool are already, you know, so far off the pace with four draws and two losses. They're 10 points off City, albeit with the game in hand. They're 14 points off Arsenal. Although I guess the, the one saving grace is we know that they can go on 14, 15, 16 games where, you know, they take maximum points in almost all of them. We've seen both them and City have those sorts of runs. I, I think the one thing that has to be re- rediscovered here is this sort of week-in, week-out intensity. And I just don't know with still two more Champions League rounds left to play, with a whole bunch of Premier League games, with the World Cup coming up, although they sort of are a bit fortunate in right. their in their World Cup build-up because we don't even know if Alexander-Arnold is going to make the plane uh, for, for England Andrew Robertson isn't going. Luis Diaz isn't going. Mosala isn't going. There are enough players who aren't going that maybe they can come out and be sort of the freshest of the big teams because so many uh, of you know Man City's players and 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 other teams' players are going to go to the World Cup. For me, that's sort of their only hope is they're the freshest team coming out of the Christmas break. The, you know, we go right into a packed, uh, uh, you know, a f- fixture schedule coming out of the World Cup. Maybe December, January, February. They come out flying and they they narrow this gap quickly. But I, I do think it, you know four draws and two losses is a lot in the first ten games, and especially given the standard of the Premier League these last few years. By the way, I think we should use the phrase "on the plane" much more often in daily discourse than just about who's going to the World Cup. Like Chris Whittingham is on the plane to Miami on Tuesday. <laughs> right, or I guess the more fittingly was sort of I'm on the plane to New York. I I, I made I made the cut uh, for for coverage uh, to 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 get on the plane and call the game from from the stadium. But I it, it, I find this sort of bigger picture discussion interesting after big games like this between Liverpool and City or Arsenal for that matter. You know, like City for example is now four points off the pace, which they can certainly make up. Uh, with Arsenal, but I, I, I still become troubled by City dropping points, and I, I feel I actually feel like they're far and away the, the highest quality team in the league, and yet they are farther out of first place today than they were entering the weekend. And I just wonder at what point you start to think, you know, maybe City's just not a guarantee. Well, I I do think some of that relies upon respecting Arsenal. Also, I think re- respecting Spurs because right now City and Spurs are level after 10 match days, which is a really impressive feat for Tottenham. They get another win at the weekend, another sort of grinded out, impressive 2-0 victory where they just sort of get the job done. I feel like we're going to look at this league table 15, 20 matches in and Spurs are just going to be hanging around. They're, they're not going to be pretty. They're not going to be the team that, you know, we, you know, sing Hosanna's about, but they are a team that are, are, are going to continue to grind out victory. So I think with City... You know, today each each game has had a sort of individual character that they draw points in against Newcastle. It was vulnerabilities defensively, particularly early. That's another one where they sort of got rattled 
uh, in a game away from home where the crowd completely lifted off and Newcastle scored a couple of quick goal, uh, goals in quick succession. This happens to Manchester City a lot, obviously happened in their Champions League elimination to Real Madrid. You just sort of wonder, and, and this goes back to the Pep Guardiola, does he allow his players to play with enough personality to play their way out of trouble? That would be the thing that is a concern. You think about how they played today. They weren't at their best. I guess sort of the the thing with them is when they aren't at their best. Now, in the Premier League, they hit it often enough that they can win league titles and they've won a few comfortably. But I think in these sort of big moments when you sort of want to trust them, they maybe haven't delivered to quite that degree. Yeah. No, it's... uh... The race is shaping up, and it, like there's unexpected stuff. Um, Arsenal wins again um, at Leeds this time. Not a great performance at all from Arsenal. Outplayed by Leeds. Weird game. Delayed for quite a while because of a tech malfunction on with the officials, and I guess it was VAR or something. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't working, so they had to get that fixed. Uh, made the game seem like it was the longest game ever, by the way, when it finally <laughs> ended. Um, and then Leeds ends up having a much higher XG from this game, dominates the second half, uh, maybe the worst pass of the season in the league yeah. from Rodrigo setting up the the goal for Arsenal uh, by Saka, where I, I guess Rodrigo thought he was switching field, but just did it out of nowhere at midfield and just basically fed a goal to <laughs> <laughs> got yanked at halftime, by the way. I can only imagine what Jesse Marsh is thinking. And Bamford comes on for the second half. Bamford has a penalty, doesn't convert. And then there was madness at the end where there was a penalty given, a red card, and then that was rescinded by VAR. And Leeds is starting to get into a position now where Tyler Adams and Brendan Aronson are playing well, uh, I think, playing pretty well. Uh, they're getting a lot of time on the field, which is good for the U.S. Um, but moral victories don't really mean a lot in the end. And, and Leeds now has not won in the league since the, the win against Chelsea, which is a long time ago. And in the last six games in the league, Leeds has two points out of a possible 18. And that's not good. Yeah, and I think it matches with performances that... I don't think any one of them are that bad. They're not getting run off the park. I don't think they're a bad team. I just sort of wonder, you know, it comes back to Jesse Marsh's idea and the way that he wants his teams to play. I don't think that it emphasizes individual quality. It's sort of designed for the team to generate chances to score goals. And it's very high octane. And in some ways, I think about Clint Dempsey's analysis of do you remember at the at the start of world cup qualifying or might have been uh, one of the nations league games where Josh Sargent was running around and putting in a crazy amount of pressing and Clint Dempsey at halftime came on came on in the studio and was like he does too much running I, I wonder if he's like too tired to finish the chances uh, and, and and you think about the way that leads don't finish their chances today their xg as you mentioned was sort of just under two and they don't score a goal they, they had a penalty that they didn't convert and there's these big mistakes that happen at big moments of the game, which have cost them massively in close games. Cause really the only game they got away from them was the Brentford match, right. but all these other games are close. And yet for whatever reason, Leeds can't find it to get over the line. And it's, it's confusing for one, for one part, but also I think is a function of the style of play. It's almost by design that these games are chaotic and that Leeds in big moments 
you know, today, last 10, 15 minutes, you're going, well, who's going to create? Or do you give the ball to a player and have them create a chance? Do you hit crosses in? I just don't know what their route is when they need a goal to go and get one. And we'll get to, you know, New York Red Bulls later on, but that is sort of typified by the Red Bull style of play. You don't know, like, in, in big moments, who you turn to. You turn to the team's structure, but that's not necessarily going to get you a goal. I also think... In the spring, when Jesse Marsh had those 12 games to keep them up and did, Leeds got some late goals and in that stretch. And we're not really seeing that lately with Leeds. They're, they're not getting late goals. If, if anything's happening, they're sort of not doing it at the end of games, what we saw from them in the spring. And so I don't think like alarm bells should be ringing necessarily quite yet, but they've got some important games coming up and they need to get some points because at this point now, I think they're only, what, one point above the relegation zone. Well, yeah, I think that for me is alarm bells. In, in the Premier League, alarm bells can come a lot quicker than you'd think. And Leeds were sort of the talk of the town after three match days when they had seven points. It could have very easily had nine, but now only a, a point above the relegation zone. Maybe Wolves will, will rediscover some form with a permanent uh, manager. Uh, you, you just, you, you don't know when, I mean, if those teams on the bottom three win three games in a row, then, you know, you could very easily be right back in there. So I think their next two games are against Leicester, who are currently in the relegation zone. And then I think they're home against Fulham. And while Fulham has been fairly impressive this season, those are probably games that you have to win. Um, so Leeds just have to, Leeds just have to get wins on the board at this point, no, almost, almost no matter the style, almost no matter how they do it. So let's talk about El Clasico, Real Madrid 3, Barcelona 1. This game was in the balance until fairly late because Barcelona got a goal to make it 2-1. Um, and yet, just a truly terrible week for Barcelona. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I can't say how bad a week this was for Barcelona and actually less bad in the league this loss today to Real Madrid obviously they were tied for first coming in uh, and the league is still there for for Barcelona but the Champions League uh, we talked about this midweek just how awful that tie was against Inter which means it's very unlikely the Barcelona is going to get out of the group they're going to head to Europa League if unless Victoria Pilsen turns into a, a super team. <laughs> um, and, and so this was the risk that Barcelona was taking in the offseason when all of these reckless things that they were doing financially, like they've been pretty good this season. And yet one bad game in Champions League and they're screwed one bad game in the league, maybe not quite as bad for the you know the, the big picture, but not great. And I do wonder a little bit, you know, Shabby, I think is, is a good, I, I think he's a promising coach. I don't know if I would say he's a good coach if we know that yet. But I do worry about him a little bit after a week like this. Well, I, I do think that the, the Arteta narrative can be instructive here because I think Arteta is certainly a coach that Arsenal have trusted to get them through a difficult time in his first kind of full senior management position, although Xavi did manage in Qatar. This is a completely different level. So I do think that Barcelona would be wise to stick with him. However, this was, you said, was the it was the risk of the way that they approached the summer, of trying to go and sign big money players. I think if, Ars if Barcelona build built fairly stably and were able to 
just sort of build on season on season. What they were doing, I think their style of play was certainly progressing. They could have brought a few players, shipped a few players out, and maybe not necessarily gone for it in this way. But the thing that I left their summer spending spree with and all of their changes was how much have they actually improved? Correct. How much better have they gotten? And I think the biggest thing with Barcelona last year, they qualified for the Champions League after Xavi came in, all was well. But my biggest feeling is if you look at them really since probably the middle of the Kuman era, or even honestly, you go back to what, you know, Kike Setien when he was in charge three or four years now, when Barcelona come up against good teams, they don't win. They don't, if you, and if you look at their wins this year, if you look at their wins last year, it's not a terribly impressive group of teams that they've beaten. If you look at, in recent times, they've beaten Celta Vigo, they've beaten Mallorca, they've beaten Elche, they've beaten Cadiz, they've been Victoria Pilsen, they've beaten Sevilla, who while normally good have been dreadful this season, and Real Valladolid are, are, their, are their wins this year. And you look at their draws and losses, it's Real Madrid, Inter, Inter, Bayern Munich. And so when they come up against the stronger teams on their fixture list, they don't summon a they don't have a high enough level. They can't outplay their their opposition. They don't have enough match defining quality and there's still sort of remnants. I mean, Usman Dembele, I think he's a good player. I think there are times where he looks imperious. I just don't think he's the star attacker that you build your 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 team around. I don't think he's that guy and considering the money that they've spent that they're still trying to recoup investment on, I, I don't think he's of that level. And so you look through that team, they aren't strong enough to beat the strongest teams. And if that's the case, what do they spend all their money on? Rafinha, Rafinha didn't elevate them in this game. Joel Kunde didn't elevate them in this game. I thought Real Madrid, you look at the goals that they scored. Karim Benzema is obviously an enormous talisman and you know probably the favorite to win the Ballon d'Or, which is going to be awarded soon. Um, you look at you know Vinny Jr. turned in another good performance today. Yeah, yeah, Valverde was fantastic. I, Real Madrid are a team of proven European winners. And you know when you enter a game with them that you're playing against not just the opponent, not just their tactics, but their pedigree. They have enormous pedigree. And for whatever reason, the Barcelona players that are still around from a time when they did have that same pedigree just aren't performing to that level. And maybe it's because they're too old to do so anymore. But Real Madrid, and, and, and it's sort of inherited, right? Of the new players that come in sort of take that on. And so Valverde, who wasn't around for all of it, now that he's been around for some of it, he sort of has that similar quality and all the other players in the team do as well. I, I was so impressed by the performance that they put in. But for me, the story is, as, as you sort of started with Barcelona and what they tried to do in the summer, they tried to accelerate the timeline, and they're still behind on the precipice of going out in the Champions League and again, not good enough to beat Real Madrid on the day. Yeah, the essence of this to me is what we were talking about this summer is the risks that were taken by Barcelona and their directors financially did they actually improve their team very much? And I, yeah, what you're saying, what we're seeing is no. And mm -hmm. we'll see if they can turn that around. I think they can't turn around Champions League. It's out of their control. Maybe in the league, you know, we'll see. But I, I, I just, I think Barcelona is getting their just desserts here. And um, we'll, we'll see where they go from this miserable week. Let's talk MLS playoffs. Yeah. Because they got going this weekend. You and I both like the MLS playoffs. It's single elimination games, 14 teams, 13 elimination games would get us to a winner. And on Sunday, 
we're recording this at 8.50 p.m. Eastern, so Montreal is currently playing Orlando. But we saw Austin go down 2-0 early to Salt Lake and turn it around and end up getting a 2-2, winning on penalties, and Austin will host another playoff game next week. And everything about that game gave off Real Salt Lake just make your life difficult. They did the same thing to Seattle last year. They beat them on penalties despite not having a single shot in the game. It was incredible, and Real Salt Lake very close to doing the same thing. I actually thought first quarter of an hour when they went 2-0 up and the way that they approached halftime was really impressive. I mean, we talk a lot about their defensive tenacity and they know how to play the underdog role, and Pablo Mastorini sort of had them you know, perfectly coached for to play that role. But it was really the quality of their their play that was super impressive. And I thought they just straight up outplayed Austin for the first half of that game. And then the game completely changes on a red card. And even despite that, Austin FC had to wait until second half stoppage time in order to get uh, an equalizer via penalty and then had to win on penalties in the end. Brad Stuver uh, turned in a tremendous performance. And, and those are moments where, you know, goalkeepers for me, when it comes to penalties... You know, you don't you can't really expect your goalkeeper to make a save in a penalty shootout. But when all of a sudden they find that form and you it, they feel like they fill the entire goal and Brad Stuver while not the biggest guy, for whatever reason it just felt like you weren't getting anything beyond him. When you say three consecutive penalties, just such an impressive performance from him and Austin I think looked like a team that just don't don't have that experience in the big moments. And you've seen with the expansion teams that have done well in the last few years, I mean, LAFC obviously comes to mind. It still takes them, like, there's something about winning begetting winning as a club. And Real Salt Lake as a club that have done it in the MLS Cup playoffs before, that have done it under this coach um, and in sort of that experience recently, I think it, it sort of signals to me that Real Salt Lake have this pedigree of having done this before. They know how to do this job, and so they're going to do it again. And it's nearly impossible to knock them out, despite the fact that Austin are at home, have a great atmosphere behind them, have a top-level MVP candidate behind them, have a good goalkeeper behind them. They have a lot of things that you want in a team to compete in the playoffs. And yet, because they haven't done it before, this is their first time, they struggle to get over the line. And I think without that red card, they would be out of the playoffs right now. Yeah, no, I agree with you on all that. Great to see the atmosphere, by the way, in Austin for this game. I was there for an MLS game uh, just last month. I had a blast. Like, that's a fun game day experience in Austin, Texas around MLS. The opposite could probably be said about the New York Red Bulls and the atmosphere that was there or not there uh, on Saturday. Uh, a lot of empty seats for that uh, kickoff. And, you know, I live here in New York, right? So the Red Bulls don't resonate here. They just don't. And, and that's unfortunate. And they go out to Cincinnati. And a lot of people picked Cincinnati to win this game just based on sort of momentum coming into the playoffs. And Cincinnati had to come from behind, but they did it. And the decisive goal is scored when Brandon Vasquez, not on the U.S. men's national team by the choice of Greg Burhalter, just destroys Aaron Long for pace Aaron Long, starting center back for the U.S. men's national team. That's a choice. And it sort of encapsulated, I think, what a lot of U.S. fans are just really frustrated by. Um, and, and Brandon Vasquez, like, just earned it. And he's done this again and again and again this season. Scores the game winner. And now Cincinnati's off to the next round. 
And I think it, when you talked about people picking Cincinnati, you mentioned kind of their run of form and what a cool story they are as a team that were the worst team in the league for their first three years in the league, finishing rock bottom and then uh, having a turnaround and looking like a competent MLS club now. And I, part of that as well was their star individual performers. And Brandon Vasquez is in that group of players. If you look at that, that team struggled defensively at times this year. They obviously went 1-0 down in this game. Who knows if they're going to be defensively solid enough uh, to hold up against the one-seed Philadelphia. But the fact that they have the three star attackers, Brenner, Brandon Vasquez, and Luciano Acosta, they allow this Cincinnati team to be competitive at this level. That's really all it takes. It's a couple of DPs and maybe one or two non-DP signings that are performing at a really high level, and that can get you over the line in the playoffs. But the fact that Vasquez is one of them, he's been that guy all season, and for whatever reason, hasn't been picked by Greg Berhalter when he does a lot of things that you would think would work in his system. I think we're now getting to a stage where Greg Berhalter has a lot to prove at this World Cup, where he has to prove that the fact that his decisions go against consensus, go against form, go against what we see with our eyes, and on top of the fact that they are coupled with poor performance by the U.S. men's national team in their most recent friendlies, they were not terribly convincing in qualifying, it is starting to get away from him a little bit. And I think there are other coaches for whom this has been the case and they've gone on to do well. Obviously, the last World Cup winner, Didier Deschamps, there's a lot of conversations about how he integrated attacking players and was still starting Blaise Matuidi at the World Cup. And a lot of people thought, well, why aren't you, why don't you pick a star attacker? Matuidi sort of helped them functionally. Olivier Giroud helped them functionally when a lot of people thought they should have picked, yeah, obviously picked Karim Benzema up top. But th they're are national team coaches that make these decisions that are on the basis of what they see either in their training sessions or how they fit within their national team and they go against the grain. They go against what is the consensus and I think each passing decision by Greg Berhalter kind of drives him further and further away from that consensus and really just puts him out there with all on the line when they when they face Wales in the opening game of the group because he has to prove everything in those 90 minutes to allow U.S. fans to feel comfortable again. And I think sometimes... Burhalter's openness sort of bites him in the rear a little bit in the sense of he talked about John Brooks and gave his reasoning for not bringing in Brooks, who, by the way, has barely played at club level this season with Benfica. So it's not like I'm clamoring for John Brooks to be brought into the national team. At this point, I'm not. Um, and yet Burhalter actually said the, the main one of the reasons I'm not bringing John Brooks in is because I haven't seen him against you know, playing a high line, doing well with that at club level, you know, last season. And so here we are. So now we know that Greg Berhalter wants to see his center backs do well in a high line system and Aaron Long getting totally victimized doing that on Saturday. And so, yes, there's going to be questions. And in a sense, it almost hurts Greg Berhalter to be detailed and open about why he's not picking certain people so i kind of get his situation but still like you say there's there are questions right now maybe more than ever uh about the national team coach the one the one the one thing i should say is as landon donovan said to us 14 times during world cup qualifying we don't have all the context 
That for me is like I, I wish we we should have changed the name of the podcast from Landon Wall and Woody on the Road to Qatar to We Don't Have All the Context. And and that and that's what I will say is you know we, we just don't know what happens behind the scenes. We don't know what Greg Berhalter is thinking. We don't know what happens in training sessions. We don't know what happens in games. And that's the only sort of uh, I guess credit I'm willing to lend Greg Berhalter because you know at the moment I, I, you know what that, that that's unfair I think you know the fact that he's won a couple trophies the fact that yeah. he qualified for the US for the World Cup he's done I think up until June I was pretty comfortable with him as the US national team manager but there's just decisions that have been made and the pressure of the World Cup gets amped up and you start thinking are we going to get this wrong is this going to yeah. is this not going to go like frankly the group dictates that it should Wales and Iran my or the the US, the U.S. should be doing enough to qualify ahead of those teams, in my opinion, based off of their level of talent, based off of what they've shown. But you just don't feel like it's a slam dunk guarantee because there's just something that's off right now about this national team. In the other Saturday MLS playoff, LA Galaxy advance past Nashville. Um, Julian Araujo, by the way, very impressive. Uh, gets the goal. Ready, ready, you- ready to play for Inter Miami on the basis of his hair color. <laughs> <laughs> But, like, your right back scores the game-winning goal on a header on the far post. It was just a, a, a fascinating sequence. That, like, he stayed up and just he, – he has a soccer IQ that is just really impressive. And, you know, soccer IQ comes up from time to time, including when players don't have it, right? So the Rodrigo pass today for <laughs> that gave Arsenal their goal is the opposite of soccer IQ. Araujo, great soccer IQ. That was impressive. And, you know, I hate to put this also in terms of national team, but Walker Zimmerman and Aaron Long won't play a competitive game until Wales at the World yeah. Cup on November 21st. That's crazy. Well, they're, they're getting the rest that nobody else in the world will have, so maybe they'll make it tell. Uh, but also, you would have a full national team camp. You'd have friendlies uh, to play between now and then. But yeah, uh, Na- Nashville are out, and that it was always the risk of the MLS Cup playoffs. It's, uh, I guess, reportedly why Luis Suarez didn't come in the summer. Uh, but I-, I do think that when it comes to these two teams, I think with the Galaxy... I'm really fascinated by how much they've grown over the course of the season, how their additions, they got their summer transfer window spot on. And we've talked on this podcast about how at times, from an organizational standpoint, from a club standpoint, they sometimes are a bit directionless. But for whatever reason, they found it from within themselves to pull out two fantastic transfers in Gaston Brugman, who's played really well in midfield, and Ricky Pooch, who's been such a good signing from Barcelona, one of the players that was cast off because... Barcelona wanted to make room from a salary standpoint. They get him to LA, which I was stunned that there was another Spanish club that was in for him. And I think you just see such a creative player, a player who dictates the play. And frankly, LAFC are coming up against him. I wouldn't want to be playing Ricky Pooch in a playoff game right now. He's that good as a creative number 10, can open you up, can help dictate the game. You can feel like it's getting away from you when they're trying to play around you and through you to finish off a game. I think if the Galaxy had one more attacker firing, name I just sort of look at Kevin Cabral's space where uh-huh. as, a young, as, as a young DP, he's in all the right places, but in, in this game, again, had a chance to make it 2-0 to, to, to finish it and look like he has absolutely no confidence in finishing a chance he's the worst finisher in the league dude i like and maybe the stats don't back that up i've seen so many examples this year of cabral 
butchering like gimmies. It's it's the most frustrating thing. And I I like I I think he's a good player. Otherwise, like other other than that other thing, than that. Other, other than with that job that you have to score goals, he's pretty good at all the other bits. But yeah, I, I he he's frustrating. I think if they had one more attacker going, I'd be I'd be picking them to get out of the West. I think as it is, they're going to give LAFC a tough game because that's always a tremendous game. I think for the league, it's brilliant to have that rivalry uh, in the playoffs and you get to build it up and and you know it'll be nationally televised and that'll be sort of the standout fixture of this next round of playoff matches come Thursday night. But you know, for for me. I think the Galaxy might just come up that little bit short because they just don't have that one extra attacker that's firing right now. I am really excited for this LAFC, LA Galaxy playoff game on Thursday night. I was actually out there for the Open Cup elimination game between Galaxy and LAFC earlier this year that the Galaxy won, and it got truly nasty at the final whistle of that game. Like, there were, like, it was bad. In a good way, I guess, but like, like they couldn't get players off the field for like ten minutes, mm-hmm. and yeah, no, the, the, this rivalry's testy, and it'll be incredible on Thursday night. And for as bad as the NFL version of Thursday night football has been in these last couple of weeks, hopefully people will want to flip on the MLS version of Thursday night. Thursday Night Football because I think it's going to be a brilliant game. I also want to talk about the NWSL playoffs, which started this weekend. We're recording this before the kickoff of San Diego, Chicago, which is going to have another big crowd out in San Diego at Snapdragon. Kansas City with the win at Houston and late goal, Kansas City advances and just continues a season where they've outperformed expectations on the field and are doing this without Sam Mewis, um, without Lynn Williams, and and just getting results. That was a big one. And it's almost a year early for them as well because they're, they'll be moving into a new stadium, and I think that'll sort of be the moment that they want to declare themselves. But this has been a team that, as you mentioned, are sort of outperforming expectations. Also, get the latest goal in NWSL playoff history that didn't happen in extra time. The 100th minute of play, uh, that is sort of very defining characteristic of, of American soccer, both men's and women's, is there's always a crazy amount of stoppage time. I was telling you today that the last text I got before our, our plane took off uh, for uh, the Red Bulls game was a text from a friend of mine saying, oh my God, there's 12 minutes of stoppage time in this Red Bull Cincinnati game. And that's sort of a, a, a very MLS-y kind of characteristic. But yeah, a, a great story for Kansas City to progress now in the playoffs and and I think heading forward, this is going to be a, 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 a genuinely a club to watch in NWSL. Once they move into a new stadium and they sort of continue to grow, I think they kind of almost soft launched last year. And now the fact they're able to make the playoffs this year, open a new stadium next year, this could be one of the defining clubs of this league for a while. Yeah, really impressive what they're doing there. They just broke ground on that stadium in downtown Kansas City. Um, it's a playoff time of year, right? So MLS, NWSL, for that matter, Liga MX. MLB. Everyone's in playoffs some of the, right now. Some of the Liga MX scorelines, by the way, have been absolutely crazy. You see like a 6-3. You see games that are over after the first leg. Uh, a really good uh, uh, playoffs. I, the the América Puebla two legs alone. América scoring 11 goals in the in, in the two legs of their uh, playoff encounter. So the Liga has delivered uh, in Mexico. Some really crooked scores. You look at Toluca 4, Santos 3. Uh, that, that's been another uh, great set of playoffs as well. So we're going to wrap things up here. Like this was such a action-packed weekend that we haven't even gotten to Bundesliga games. Union Berlin stays in first place by winning against Dortmund. 
Jordan Peefock coming off with an injury in that one, so keep an eye on that. Uh, Bayern Munich just destroyed Freiburg, so Bayern Munich may be getting back into Bayern-type form. But I really hope that Union Berlin just continues to do what they're doing <laughs> and and make this a real race. Yeah, and so they're four points clear of Bayern as it stands right now. They have won uh, four games in a row in all competitions. Uh, they've won a couple of Europa League matches in there. But it just sort of feels like a situation where in two weeks, we're, we're going to get to the World Cup. We're going to be like, huh, Union Berlin still top, huh? And we're going to get to, you know, February. We're going to go, Union Berlin still top, huh? <laughs> and it, it, it's one of those things where eventually we sort of come to, wait, this might actually happen, but I still sort of have in the back of my mind that Bayern are eventually going to run away with it because that's just how Germany goes. Yeah, I've got so many stories that are piling up on my list of post-World Cup stories to do, and Union Berlin remains at the top of that. And I just hope they can continue this until yeah. I can get over there <laughs> and do the story. That for me is one of the like the, the stories that I'd love to learn about because I I love watching games at their stadium because they have what is normally here like the one supporter stand where they have the safe standing. That's like three sides of the stadium. Like the whole stadium has that like really cool atmosphere. So I I, I love to learn more about that club. Okay, let's uh, let's keep that on the list. Put a pin in that one, Chris. Always <laughs> good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.